0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amafidon. Thanks for tuning in. alumni, artists, activists, educators, and more. You're looking at the pioneers of Roxbury Community College. For the past five decades, RCC has been a pillar of education for the greater Boston area. BNN News celebrates the 50th anniversary of Roxbury Community College with the unveiling of the pioneer portraits.
1: The importance of this college is the importance of black people. This college is here because black people wanted it here.
0: Last Thursday was an evening to remember, one of joy and reflection as RCC supporters from all stages of the institution's life celebrated the milestone of its golden anniversary.
2: Now you know that this college has a history that no other college has. This college has an
0: ownership that no other college, no other community college has. This college started with the vision of great people
2: in the 60s, and they fought for us to be here. They fought for this college. And it is such an honor that we have to carry on their legacy.
0: The story of RCC is one of perseverance. The community college first opened its doors on September 10th in 1973. Its inaugural class was just 400 students and its first location, a former car dealership in Grove Hall. The 1234 Columbus Ave building we know today first broke ground in 1985, only after impassioned Roxbury residents and early champions of the school, such as former city councilor Chuck Turner, fought to stop the state's expansion of the I-95 into Roxbury. It's not been an easy road, but it's been a worthwhile one.
1: It really has a really important factor
2: in a community that has been
1: denigrated, uh, marginalized, In so many ways, years ago, when I first became aware of Roxbury Community College and started doing photographs for them, seeing how the school was marginalized by the people downtown and seeing how it has not only persevered, but transcended all the expectations of a lot of people.
0: The honored RCC pioneers are the reason why the college is here today. All 49 individuals were nominated by the public for their contributions to the school. Guests took in the pioneer portraits captured by photographer Lou Jones. Yet there are countless more from the Roxbury community who are part of the school's success. Thus, local artists Napoleon Jones Henderson and Stephen Hamilton will immortalize the Roxbury community as the 50th pioneer through created artwork. And what do these pioneers wish for the school now?
2: I would like the next 50 years to be dedicated to actually doing the educational work without having to spend so much time fighting for survival. Because that's, you know, we have had, in these first 50 years, I mean, I, I ran out of how many demonstrations I had to go to, how many senators I had to speak to, how many people I had to sort of cajole into saying, you know, come to the college and see, and, and
0: see what's happening here. As Boston's only predominantly black institution, RCC has filled an educational need for the city's black, Latinx, and immigrant communities and the efforts of its pioneers have ensured the next generation of students will have new opportunities as they become leaders in our city.
1: It's very important that we have a college here at our community because it gives, it gives a sense of welcoming and being um, at home while we're going to school. Um, and also the different types of diversity that exists in our community is very important for somebody to um, be comfortable in the community.
0: It is this generation of students who must be the pioneers of tomorrow in making sure RCC is here for another 50 years.
2: I have faith that we're never leaving. That's right. This college will be here. That's our job, to make sure this college is here. 50 years from
0: now. The Pioneer exhibit will tour the city starting March 20th at Boston City Hall. Viewers can stay posted on additional sites and dates at www.rcc.mass.edu forward slash 50pioneers. On Saturday, veterans and military families came together at the seventh annual Black Veterans Appreciation Brunch, all to recognize the sacrifices made by black Americans throughout America's history. Joyful sounds of the Boston Black Catholic Choir gave way to the patriotic tones of the National Anthem at the 7th Annual Black Veterans Appreciation Brunch. Nearly 200 were present at Florian Hall for the event hosted by the city's Office of Veterans Services. Closing out Black History Month, the brunch was an opportunity to honor black veterans who heroically served our country from the Revolutionary War to present day.
1: I think there should be more more acknowledgment for the black veterans. They've been involved in many of the same conflicts as white veterans dating back to the Revolutionary War. Me, myself, I went to uh, airborne school, and it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I learned about the 555th Airborne Regiment, which was the US Army's first all-black parachutist regiment, and people like that paved the way for paratroopers like me. Mm-hmm. and. It's something that you never really hear about in the history books, and I think there just needs to be a spotlight on many of the brave veterans that played the role, did the role. The contributions of our black American veterans have for very long been overlooked. They've been serving our country with honor and commitment since the Revolutionary War, and it's very important for us to honor them, to recognize them, because of that fact. They've given their lives, their their blood, you know, to this country, and it's about time that they get recognized for all they've done.
0: According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, there are 2.1 million black military veterans nationwide. By land, by sea, and by air, African Americans have fought valiantly for a country which at many turns refused to embrace them. Their stories highlight courage, sacrifice, and resilience. Black veterans deserve to be recognized and taken care of for their efforts.
1: The history of the African American black military experience is one that Requires that everybody know about it because it was all about freedom, and building America. The death rate of military sacrifices of black veterans is, is immeasurable in that they were not counted, they were not recorded for their services, and now we have an opportunity to begin, as I do, uh, educate people about the importance of military veterans uh, contributions to this country for the last over 300 years.
2: During Black History Month, we take the time to recognize not only the contributions of so many members of our community here, legends and and heroes in the black community who have served our city but also our country, um, but also to recognize the work that remains Mm -hmm. and the additional barriers that we are looking to help tackle from Uh, the perspective of housing and home ownership, closing the racial wealth gap, or um, access to the health education and um, economic opportunities and outcomes that everyone deserves.
0: Boston Public Schools and Special Olympics Massachusetts have introduced a new program, Special Olympics Unified Champion Schools, to bring a more inclusive and equitable education and programming to all students. Through this program, BPS will gain access to Special Olympics resources and earn a Unified Champion School designation, a program for pre-K through university schools that intentionally promotes meaningful social inclusion by bringing together students with and without intellectual disabilities to create more positive school environments. Take a look at what happened in Brighton. Mayor Michelle Wu brought her A-game when she tipped off the unified basketball game at Brighton High School. Boston Public Schools announced that they'll be strengthening their special education programming. Thanks to their collaboration with Special Olympics Massachusetts, this commitment to inclusion will be monumental to their efforts to uplift those with disabilities. I think the difference in quality of life when it comes to inclusion is that you actually feel like you are part of a community. You are not looking out a window. That inclusion allows it to happen so that you feel like a welcomed member of your city, your town, your school, your community. And I think when there's not inclusion, we have you know, kind of the craziness that we have in today's world. So the more we can teach at a younger age that we all are able, then I think that's what's really important. And if we can continue that throughout someone's life, then inclusion will be everywhere. And that's, to me, what's the most important about this partnership. Special education often falls by the wayside in conversations about improving our schools. But the new program promises to enhance their experience in school and after school. Students and their peers felt every effort and care in the process, and a little razzle-dazzle kept them smiling. You really see what's possible. I think our special education students show us that, right? They show us how to be able to dream, to overcome a challenge, um, but they also show us the value of working together. You know, what you saw today on the court were the kids working with each other. Um, peers, special education students together for a common goal. And they were helping each other
2: when they could have taken the shot, they passed it to someone else. That's the value of teamwork. We have so much as a society to learn from our kids, to learn from our children. And I think today we saw some really
0: valuable lessons as adults of what it means to be an inclusive community, and Special Olympics led the way with it. Even students had the chance to share what this new program means to them
2: and how inclusivity creates a more positive environment for learning. This is the first time I got into play school sports, and it makes me feel excited to be part of a team. I was nervous at first, but now I have more confidence getting to play. I met students from the school who have, be- have now became my friends.
0: Cheers and chants filled the Great Hall of Flags at the State House, where dozens of young people made their demands plain to increase the youth funding and Governor Healy's upcoming state budget for the betterment of their futures. Like. For the 15th year, students from across Massachusetts gathered at the State House, empowering their generation to stand up for their rights rights to equality education, rights to work, rights to vote, and the right to make their aspirations come to fruition. Last Thursday's Youth Justice Rally was a collective effort of the I Have a Future Coalition, an alliance of over 15 powerful grassroots organizations run by the young people of the Commonwealth, each of them passionate about their causes and determined to make their presence known.
2: At the end of the day, young people are experiencing the city its institutions its laws um, and everything that it has to offer just as much as any 21 22 30 45 year old and so we deserve as much as a a say within those institutions within those laws as anyone else um, young people are going to jail. Young people are ha- homeless. Young people are having to support their families, and all of these issues affect us. And somehow, some way, uh, especially uh, the younger um, folks are not getting a, a say in those decisions.
1: We really do think it's unfair for you know people who aren't our age to speak for us because they don't truly know what we want. So having people, having young people speak out like this, just shows them that we can do this and that we have the power to do that.
0: Over the past two decades, I Have a Future has led DA forums, helped pass the racial justice policing bill, fought off sub-wages for teens, and mobilized the young people of Boston to be agents of change. Young people in the audience were asked to stand if they knew someone killed by gun violence, incarcerated or involved in the court system. It was a stunning sight. In Unity, participants took part in a live canvas creation with artist Yotron the Don, painting the background of his artwork, which was inspired by this year's event theme, Watering the Seeds of Change.
1: I think it was dope, you know, cause like having a, having a piece just standing alone, you know, it could be impactful, but not as much as like having the whole canvas filled. By that I mean the background, that's what really brings it all together. And fortunately I had, you know, the pleasure of, all of these different-minded individuals you know all fighting for different things going through different things and I, i was able to have them you know input their energy onto my piece and it turned it into what it is
0: i have a future's demands include creating more youth jobs accountability for inequalities and suspensions and expulsions ending the automatic prosecution of 18 to 20 year olds Lowering the voting age to 16 years old in municipal elections, rent control, the list goes on, as does their commitment to a better future. Honoring Black History Month, some of Boston's black-owned businesses arrived in force in Medford on Saturday, February 18th to show what black entrepreneurship is all about. BNN's Rin Velasco has
2: more. Some black-owned businesses from Boston as well as others from across Massachusetts came to West Medford Community Center's Black Entrepreneurs Showcase and Sale on Saturday, giving locals a chance to support black-owned businesses. I think that black entrepreneurship is very very important because we want our children to see that you know as the saying goes if i can see it then i can be it some vendors sold various crafts made by black artisans collectibles that chronicle black history and other goods at the event i feel like a lot of small black home businesses don't get the recognition that they deserve and all we're trying to do is help them. A Guidance Small Business Trends report says Black Americans make up slightly over 5% of small business owners in 2023.
0: I wanted to support Black businesses, and I purchased a couple of goodies. As a person who owns a Black business, it's critical that we spend our dollars.
2: The U.S. Department of Commerce says businesses owned by American minorities make up over a fourth of all firms in the country, and will be a driving force in determining national prosperity by 2044. Reporting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Rin Velasco for BNN. Jace
0: Clayton is a writer, artist, and musician who's fascinated with sound. He uses his work to apply new meanings to the concept of sound and his roots as a DJ shape his artistic viewpoint. He's currently the Assistant Professor of Visual Arts and Interim Director of Columbia University's Sound Art Master's Program. Clayton's latest exhibition at the MassArt Art Museum explores the nature of how we interact with museums, sound, and each other. He joined us by Zoom to discuss the new exhibition and how music and sound has influenced his life. Enjoy the interview. Your latest three-part work entitled They Are Part made its Boston premiere at MassArt Museum on February 23rd. Can you talk a little bit about the inspirations behind the work and how it came to be?
1: Sure, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's roots are in my background as a DJ, You know, I'm an artist and a writer, but specifically with this piece, I was thinking a lot about um, public sound, about the ways people gather around sound, um, and the ways we both kind of like mark time and remember ourselves through sound. And so I wanted to create a sort of, you know, a set of interactive works that could be engaged with some of those themes and concerns.
0: Excellent, and as a DJ, you exercise a lot of control in regard to the music selection that you bring to your audience. Why was it important for you to have the audience curate their own experience with the interactive 40 part part? And what new sounds have they introduced to you through it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was important to let, I love um, playing, you can say playing with the frame of the museum. Right. And so DJing, it's different spaces, but in a museum space, we used to be these sort of passive observers. You go, you look at what's on the wall, you look at the sculpture, that's it. With this piece, um, you know, the work 40 Part Part, it's completely silent until an audience member goes, pulls up their device, selects something to play, and then it's activated. And so I wanted to, yeah, to introduce the sense of play into the museum space to let people know that like, oh yeah, this is your space too. Um, And you can come play whatever you want and you're going to hear it loud and you're going to hear it also transformed by what I'm doing. So in a way it was tapping into the fact that we almost, you know, many people will have a smartphone or other device within arm's reach at any point in time during the day. And so it was like, let's take advantage of that. And let's, but let's also reintroduce it with this kind of like magical and surprising activation of it. Um, and I've heard people play all sorts of things over 40 Park Park. Um, of course, you know, some people would like to go and play a song they know well, which is really exciting because they get to hear how it's transformed and processed by the algorithm, something that they have a, already have a strong emotional connection to. Hmm. Um, some people do phone calls over it, you know, or playback voicemails. So you get to hear this wild, <laughs> wild messages being scattered and scrambled. Um, I've had musicians write a piece of music and then come in just to play it over the system. Mm-hmm. Um and but people do all manner of things. You know, some people play videos of their kids singing happy birthday. And so yeah, it's really it's really fun and it really kind of like unlocks that sort of like easygoing creativity that everybody has. Um and so it's really exciting for me to, to just witness the people making the choices and then seeing their faces as they hear what, what happens.
0: I love that. And in addition to 40-part part, there's also the Sufi plugins. Um, and as you were putting that together, you did some time researching digital culture in North Africa. I'm curious uh, what you discovered in, in that time.
1: Oh, I mean, so much. <laughs> yeah, Morocco and North Africa is a place or pretty much since high school, I first started hearing music from there and Had a, it's been so generative to me as a musician and as a listener. Um, and so with the Sufi plugins project, basically, it's I call it somewhere between an art project and a project for digital music making instruments. Hmm. Um, and completely informed by my time in North Africa. And specifically, it, it was working with musicians from there with my electronic music set up and thinking, wow, we think similarly. We're musicians. We've got a lot in common, but the technologies are so different, you know. So this violinist I was working with very closely, uh, you know, his scales and his approaches to rhythm were amazing, but they didn't work well with my software. Oh. And so that was the inspiration for this project, which was like, let's make a tool that can tap into this rich tradition of music from North Africa, music from the Arab world. Um, but also kind of like translate it and present it in a digital format. And, and in the, the standard sort of digital software synthesizer, it's very much focused around Western ideas about music, about what the, you know, the C major, 120 beats per minute, all these things that we kind of take for granted in sort of pop context. Um, but the world of music is so much bigger. And, and that's what I wanted to, to address with Sufi plugins.
0: Great. And can you talk to us more about um, the limitations of the American and European software when it comes to global musicians?
1: Yeah, the easiest way for me to explain it is to think of, you know, since the beginning of time, people have made all manner of acoustic instruments, physical instruments, um, every country, every place you go, different instruments, different ways of playing them. And that reflects the diversity of ideas about what music is and how people should, should play it. But in the last 20 years, we've seen how with electronic music, um, all the companies making electronic music tools, they're almost entirely based in America and Europe. And so when I say limitations, it's software that's being used globally, but the software defaults to a very small set of musical possibilities. Hmm. You know, it can take something simple like so much um, so much music from around the world will use like polyrhythms and subtle shifting rhythm, rhythms, but the software likes steady, regular, 4-4 gridded music and doesn't play well with more um, intricate and nuanced musical um, systems, for example. And of course, scales and tuning are a huge part. Um, most of these software synthesizers are, are tuned to the same skills as a piano which is great if you want to play, you know, Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Beethoven, mm-hmm. but if you want to play, you know, Wum or any number of hugely, if you want to play music from any other musical traditions where there's different spacings between the notes, quarter-tone notes, um, you know, the, all these different scales simply can't be played on a Western piano, and it by extension can't be played on a lot of this Western software. And so those are the types of limitations. You know, if you open up the software program, you can say, I can do all these million things. But then the more you think about it, you're like, oh, well, actually, it's gently steering me towards a certain type approach to music. Right. It's gently steering me towards certain melodic and rhythm structures.
0: Hmm. And as technology plays a, a larger role in the creation of music, what elements should artists and musicians like yourself not forget?
1: that it's so funny um musicians the sense of play and collaboration that musicians have really close at the heart of what we do that is key to me and so you know I love digital tools I love the fact that like inexpensive laptops are letting kids all over the world make wild new music but it's always important to think that the play can extend to our tools as well. It's not just playing with other musicians or picking up something, but, oh, we can shape these tools. Hmm. And especially for people who love acoustic music, different types of traditions of music from around the world, there are ways, it might not be easy, but there are ways to integrate that with kind of more contemporary and more electronic sounds. And so I just want to remind musicians that we have um, so much creative power, and it's not just in what we create, but it's also in the tools we use and how we can shape them.
0: Hmm. And how did you start your own career in music? How did you know that this was this was the life for you?
1: <laughs> Gradually. You know, at first it, the idea of making money off music was the most distant thing imaginable. And so I began, you know, as a young kid growing up outside of Boston, just listening to the radio, late-night college radio. That was my introduction to the world of music. And then at one point I decided to become a DJ because I loved all this all this music so much, and I wanted to interface with it at that level. But it wasn't until years later when I realized, oh, I can actually make money off this. <laughs> I got into it for the love of music, and that's what sustained me. Um, and again, only gradually did it did it see, did I realize that there was a sort of career possibility. Hmm
0: and you've done incredible things uh, since then. And uh, just to, to close us off, what do you hope that visitors take away from the They Are Part exhibit?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love, I hope, that they, I hope they tap into um, almost the like childlike joy of playing a sound you love, but also being surprised. Um, I hope they, they they are able to feel um, kind of like welcomed and embraced, like this is you know, cutting edge, contemporary art, technologically very complicated, but you don't need to know anything to enjoy it. You can just walk in there completely unprepared and experience something. I think that there can be a sort of, um, and so I want that sense of a kind of like, we make the room, we make the space, um, and there's just this open invitation to come and engage.
0: Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9 30 and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6 30 and 9 30 p.m., and Monday through Thursday at 7 30 and 9 30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith the Mass. I'll see you next Friday.